0: Life is full of transitions, even with the ownership of your pharmacy. You may be thinking about succession planning, retiring, or buying another pharmacy. Well, the Cardinal Health Pharmacy Transition Team has you covered. We provide consultation to all community pharmacies. The sooner you can form your plan, the better. We are here to help your pharmacy, learn more about opportunities for buyers and sellers, become informed of your financing options, and leave your patients and employees in good hands. Please stop by the Pharmacy Transition booth located on the RBC showroom floor to learn more. listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: There is a book out there that we're going to have links to in our show notes that if you haven't read and just the the pure inspiration that's, that's driven by by the author, um, I want to I preface this. I want to talk about trading grenades for candy, a Kurdish refugee's American journey, and someone who is uh, no, sh- no, no stranger to adversity, personal adversity, as well as just over the years as a leader in healthcare and pharmacy by being able to share her story. I want to welcome Dr. Helen Serrani, PharmD, to the pharmacy podcast. You are an Rx influencer, uh, Helen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having
1: me, Todd. So goodness, this book has become very special and the memoirs that you put together driven by personal experience and what you had to come o- overcome as a child. Um, before we get into really talking about the book, can you tell me right off the bat, why did you wanna become a pharmacist?
0: So, um... <clears throat> It's it's very simple. I was inspired by um, my community pharmacist and publics. So I'm from Georgia and uh, I used to be a bagger when I was 16. And um, Nidra was a Publix pharmacist um, in uh, Georgia. I'm hoping she's listening to us. Uh, she's the one that inspired me to become a pharmacist. Um, I loved her communication with her patients, her care, her passion. And I would say that's what led me to be um, a pharmacist. And it's been such a great journey to be part of this community, to give um, to patients and um, um, be innovative as well, not just, um, you know, limit myself to what is out there, but also explore other opportunities to be who I am as a pharmacist.
1: I also have to give a shout out to the South Carolina Pharmacy Association, um, an amazing organization that you're leading. You are the CEO of the SCPHA. Um, That's very special. And I know that you've, um, you've treasured that role already but um, how did that come to be? How did how did you go from, you know, being a, a pharmacist and working in um, with the with the American Pharmacists Association and as an assistant professor? And now you're uh, running an entire state organization focused on pharmacy excellence. Like, how did that come to be?
0: So um, I guess. Through organizations like APHA um, through state organizations, it's about impact um, and it's about member value. Um, you try to see what members want um, and it's it's a huge responsibility. Um, and I remember when Tom Minigan was the CEO of APHA, he used to tell me Helen being a state exec is the hardest job. And I didn't realize until I became one. And the reason why, Um, is such a um, difficult job and position uh, to be at its... Because you have to assume responsibility for everything, from board relation to staff development, to educational needs of members, to meeting uh, member needs, and it's it's not easy. Because we go to pharmacy school for one skill set, um, but then when you are assume um, leadership for an association or or a state association, you have to um, show expertise in various areas, from finance to staff development to um, education to you know. Education advocacy and that's, you need to be really quick um, in picking things up and um, not having the answer is not something, you know, that would go by. It just, you just have to take your time and kind of, you know, um, have coaches and um, the right people to talk to, to get the right expertise. So you can meet uh, the immediate need of your members in your, in your state.
1: Your annual conference is coming up June 24th to 27th. Um, we're going to be tweeting about this and sharing it on Instagram. Um, we're excited to uh, to have you not only on uh, today's show about the inspiration and what you've learned through uh, the, the the life experiences that you've had as a refugee, but now you've taken a leadership role in in South Carolina Farmers Association. I think that is very special. And I think it brings, um, elements of healthcare, empathy, health equity, um, and understanding in a way that you probably wouldn't have got it if you wouldn't have gone through what you have in your, in your life as younger. So we're going to shift gears back to trading grenades for candy, a Kurdish refugees, American, uh, journey, and just open up to you and, and let you kind of summarize, this amazing and beautiful story?
0: So the story, um, Trading Grenades for Candy, it it revolves around this encounter I had as a seven-year-old refugee girl with a U.S. Marine. Um, I'm originally from Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, And as you're aware, Iraq has gone through years and years of conflict. So U.S. Marine um, and military forces were deployed to my country. Um, So as a seven-year-old, I somehow got my hand on um, a grenade uh, thinking it was a toy. Um, And um, I was just walking on a random interstate in my home city, and then I got got honked at by, um, a Humvee. And then as I looked around, um, the, there was like a group of U.S. Marines, that were waving a bag of candy at me in exchange for the explosive I was ha- I, I had in my hands. So that's the encounter I had, um, thinking that I got the better deal of the negotiation. Um, and that's what inspired the title of the book, Trading Grenades for Candy. Um, it has the, the, the little girl on the book, is a picture of me and with the U.S. Marine. The goal of the book is to identify the unknown marine that saved my life. Uh, so the search continues, uh, but um, the book is actually, um, it's for a cause. And I'm hoping that through my message of opening up with my <clears throat> adversities, that I can actually use the sales to help with those little girl, girls who are mirror vision um, versions of myself to help with their PTSD treatment back home as well.
1: That's very special. Before we started um, the the interview today, we were talking about the U.S. Farmy and how we've developed a, a t-shirt campaign and an awareness campaign that we've never really vetted. Like we've never really grown it to what I think it can become just because of how busy I'm in this publication. And we really try to serve our clients um, in order to keep us going and keep growing. But, the U.S. Farmy hashtag U.S. Farmy um, or U.S. Farmie.com, that's all about uh, supporting our our veterans and first line responders to um, to the world of PTSD, to post traumatic stress disorder affecting, um, you know, so many people. Do you have statistics on that case of what they've documented, um, Helen, uh, throughout the country? Do you have any stats there?
0: I don't unfortunately, um, but I just know, um, and I was actually in discussion with the Iowa board of uh, Board of directors. Um, unfortunately, PTSD now is not limited to um, to uh, veterans who have served in combat. um you know, pharmacists are actually starting to show signs and symptoms of PTSD because of what they've been. Uh, put under for the last two years. So the stats specific for veterans, unfortunately I don't, but it's, it's not limited just to veterans anymore.
1: Yeah. Our stats that we keep track of, um, put us at 486,000, um, veterans who come back from multitude, Mm -hmm. different ways of serving, um, are, are diagnosed with, that's like a half, a half a million, you know, people in our, in our service, which affects not only them and their lives moving forward and dealing with stress and dealing with, but I mean, we're talking about the impact on families, on marriages, on their employers and everything. And I was talking to you before we, we started the interview about, you know, I'm at that age where I can distinctly look back at my five-year-old, seven-year-old, nine, 10, even teens where mental health was not in the spotlight like it is right now. And it was shoved under the carpet. The, the stress that my dad had as a electrical worker, that he would climb towers hundreds of feet into the air. And some people would refuse to do that kind of work. And after a while, you know, he said it didn't bother him anymore. But even something as simple as the work that you're supposed to be doing, and you have to stay professional, you have to stay together. I think of our pharmacists, Helen, where they're in, a a retail community environment and they have 600 prescriptions in queue they have vaccine tests to put out their phone is ringing there's you know someone screaming on you know at the counter at them and you know the stress that our retail pharmacists are under and how that could probably trigger an an element of ptsd or a breakdown or stress and how now at least we're aware of that but Right. Seven, 10 years ago, we we just weren't aware of it.
0: Right. And the other thing is um, taught to complement what you were saying for every um, combat veteran with PTSD, there's 10 children in America with PTSD. Um, and the reason I say this, because a lot of people think that they're immune uh, to PTSD just because they have not served in combat. Um, and there's a famous study um, that was done uh, in partnership, um, it was a partnership study between CDC as well as Kaiser Permanente. And it talks about adversity. It talks about how exposure to trauma is far more prevalent and that nobody is immune to trauma. And how, as kids, uh, whatever we're exposed to, we don't have a recollection of it, but the body keeps the score, which means it subconsciously impacts our career decisions, relationships, as well as how we cope with our um, friends and coworkers.
1: There is a study titled Post-Traumatic Stress Symptoms in Healthcare Workers Dealing with the COVID-19 Pandemic. It was a systematic review. It was published on the National Library of Medicine. I'm gonna have that link in our show notes uh, attached to this episode, as well as a link to um, Helen's uh, book what a special opportunity to share this memoir. Um, how has this impacted you, um, as a healthcare provider, how have you been able to leverage the experiences, um, of being a refugee, uh, coming to America and using those kinds of experience in, in, in serving, um, a patient or, or a patient's family.
0: So, um, there is a huge campaign on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that's going on in the country. And unfortunately, um, the, the campaign is uh, poorly handled uh, because it's commercialized. Um, and I, I often say, if you do not appreciate the human experience of diversity, equity, and inclusion, then you have no business to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because diversity, equity and inclusion is not about how many African-Americans you have in your team or how many Latinas, how many Asians, or how many Muslims. It's about that deep human um, connection. It's about the experience. Do you understand what it takes to be an African-American? Do you understand what it takes to be a refugee child who was born in combat? So, So I... Find wisdom in suffering because I feel like uh, when I talk about marginalization, because to me, marginalization is it's adversity. Because as social creatures, we have that deep um, the craving for that deep human connection. And when someone says you don't belong here because of your hair is curly or because your skin is brown or because it deprives you from what you you desperately want, so it's very traumatizing to the body. So I always say for you to be culturally sensitive, you absolutely have to be trauma-informed because you have to have that appreciation to the basic human need, which is that social connection. We're social creatures. We're here to connect. And discrimination is, it separates us. So it's very traumatizing. So I feel like that angle kind of helped me in a way to better relate to my patients, especially those from marginalized communities.
1: I think it's interesting and telling how we can reference the actions of some of the youngest children that I've watched when I used to teach swim lessons. Mm -hmm. Um, these were, um, four and five year old babies. And I saw how they interacted with each other in the sandbox, in the swimming pool. And there was no element of, um, of bullying or racism or hatred. It was like, I want to play with you. I'm interested in you. It didn't matter. And I, I, that's when I started noticing in my own life, I was only 17 years old and I really started paying attention to how children treated each other. And if there was negativity, it was usually Mm -hmm. either, either squashed or empowered by the parent or by the, the the child's you know older representation, and it really comes back to um, how important it is for us to set standards by our own actions first, and then turn around and use it as teaching lessons to to our kids.
0: <laughs> totally, totally.
1: Yeah. So um, your own um, your own trek in healthcare, and now um, much more leader driven and administrative. What do you think the greatest challenges of the United States healthcare system are right now? And oh my gosh, you, you and I could talk for the rest of our lives and never get through everything, but nonetheless, there's has to be something that boils to the top that that you think needs more attention, especially from our pharmacist warriors.
0: Um, I would say trauma-informed. Care is what's—it's the missing ingredient um, in our healthcare, uh, that human factor. Um, we are as—and again, uh, me being a pharmacist, I'm equally guilty of this because I was trained like how you were trained, uh, very black and white, right? Uh, right medication, right dose, right time, right price. But when it comes to um, uncertainty, those skills do not work. Um, And I know I've had students, I've had residents turn a patient uh, down because the patient was early. They needed their blood pressure early Um, and the pharmacist the student will be like, well, too bad, so sad. Um, and that's where the skill of transformative care comes in. We don't do enough of that, that that human 101. Um, and I, the reason why uh, I emphasize trauma when it comes to transformation, it's uh, there is no such thing as ideal growth, as ideal childhood, that's simply an illusion, which means um, for us to be uh, good citizens, good healthcare workers in the United States, we absolutely have to be trauma-informed to have an appreciation of diversity, to have an appreciation of another pandemic that might happen again, right? Um, that just, you know, challenged all of us to our core. And why did it challenge us? Because we didn't have any experience with self-transformation. I feel like if, if the school better prepared us how to be trauma-informed, how to be to better be prepared, to be, um, have the skills as a, a transformative skill, I feel like we would have been better prepared for the pandemic. But because we're so wired for hard skills, um, the pandemic was very challenging for most of us. So I would say that's something that is missing in our curriculum as well as uh, the healthcare system in the United States.
1: I agree with you, the, the identification of curriculum, what that curriculum needs to be but also how it's taught is so important it's almost like the context of of what you were saying about being um, understanding of what diversity is in the workplace and yours is much more empathetic because it's it's in the roots of the issue it's not just gleaming over the right. you know, the, the the challenge and i think of that the six guiding principles to Uh, trauma-informed approach. They're talking about number one is safety. Number two Mm -hmm. is trustworthiness and transparency. Three is peer support. Uh, We Mm -hmm. definitely need that among, especially among our our healthcare providers. Um, Number four is collaboration and mutuality. Number five, empowerment and choice. And then the final one is cultural, historical, and gender issues. Uh, just to have contextual understanding of what a patient or person or coworker or even your spouse or loved one, what they're going through, so I'm gonna list these in our show notes as well. If the uh, listener wants to <clears throat> learn more. I also want to have your LinkedIn profile in there so that people can reach out to you specifically. Sure. Um, yeah. And I, and I want to just say that there is a real opportunity. We have a um, we have an initiative. Which this um, podcast is is pushed through, and that is transforming a nation, and that is how do pharmacists have an opportunity to transform our nation in ways that others may not. And the number one, which is factual, and it's it's not my opinion, even though I love it for my opinion, because my pharmacists are my favorite providers, but the number one healthcare provider that's seen in our communities more than anyone is the pharmacist. You know, nine. Nine times to to one for the primary care, so that in and of itself, even though you're you're busy and you're sometimes <laughs> don't think you're going to make it in that retail community setting, there's still an opportunity to remember that health is one thing, but care is another thing. And I think it it's you can't separate the two when you say health care. And I've always said, boy, they should capitalize the C in health care. And, you know, and really start thinking, you don't have to be a brain surgeon. You don't have to be a PharmD. Um, I'm not a PharmD. I'm not a physician. I'm a publicist and a marketer and someone who believes in pharmacists. But I consider my care to be an important part of the healthcare care continuum and pharmacy care in general. And that's how much you care about pharmacists and getting your word out and your message out. So let's talk about trauma-informed care in the pharmacist and um, and being able to really transform a nation. What can you say to our pharmacist listeners right now about those concepts and guiding principles?
0: I think we all have a role to play. Um, and I feel like our training um, has been very s- symptom oriented, um, but I think if you really dig deep down into every mental health, the common or the root cause of all mental health is trauma. Uh, And I like to say um, mental health disease is our coping mechanism to childhood adversity. Um, And if we have a little bit of appreciation to what trauma does, because what is trauma? The definition of trauma is what happens inside you because of what happened to you. Um, And I would say addiction is a trauma response. Um, All the mental health diagnoses that's listed in DSM-5 criteria, is a trauma response. So instead of treating the symptoms of trauma, why not dig deep and figure out what is it that happened inside you because of what you were exposed to as a child and use that metacognition um, to heal the the body. Um, But I feel like our training is uh, very... Focused, and I'm not belittling uh, pharmacotherapy, uh, but I just feel like pharmacotherapy needs to be the last resort. It needs to complement the holistic approach of, you know, uh, involving metacognition, which is mindfulness, meditation, as well as yoga, because those is what regulates the body. um, So we can be better prepared to address future diversities in the future.
1: You know, you just said this 10 years ago, and you would have gotten eye rolls and, you know, people, pharmacists, physicians probably being like, you know, who's this Helen lady? But it's so that functional medicine approach, that integrative medicine approach, it's mainstream now. And and we're realizing if you combined evidence-based, proven, peer reviewed processes, studies, and you combine that with functional medicine, it's almost the... It's I'm nothing's perfect, but it's almost the, the perfect combination of of true medicine and practicing medicine and practicing health and it, in and it. And I think that we have to have both moving forward also to lower costs and, instead of always going for the magic pill. Hey, I have a condition. Let me go to the magic pill. It, pharmacists aren't doing that anymore. They're slowing down and they're asking questions and they're saying, wait a second. Um, did you say you smoke? Yes. Okay. How often? You know, once a day. Great. Um, what are you drinking all day? Are you drinking water? No, I'm drinking sweet iced tea. Oh, okay. So right. you know, is it always sweet? Yes, it's uh, I love it. Sweet is the sweeter the better. Oh my goodness. You know, so I mean there's now all of a sudden you're you're the pharmacist is drawing this this picture of this person and then the the question, Are you married? No are you, you know, dating somebody? Yes. You know, I see there's, you know, you, there's a bruising on your arm. Is everything okay? You know, well, I don't know, you know, it might be an embarrassment situation. There might be a trust thing that you start digging in that they're living with some kind of, you know, condition where there's, there's violence in their life or something, but boy, we didn't just run to a a, a drug and be like, hey, you better get on, you know, Zyprexa or something like that. Like, let's take time to to truly um, unwrap each of the situations and that's where this functional medicine comes in yeah excellent yeah. so where do you think pharmacists can best be positioned to combine this so that we have an element of evidence-based practice but then we bring in a trauma-informed care initiative to really unravel, especially in things like pediatrics, where it's so hard to get a, a patient that may only be three years old. And now the pharmacist that's involved with a topical or whatever it is, they're able to see the whole picture by their own eyes and maybe even ask questions in a way. But can you kind of try to put the pharmacist in, in position of, of how they would start?
0: So, um, It's interesting, that same question was asked of me right before I uh, dialed in. Um, How can you tell what are the signs and symptoms? Um, So I I find a lot of value in the ACE study that uh, the adverse childhood experiences. That's something I use as a frontline uh, provider when I was with Doctors Without Borders and uh, the A study basically asks nine questions of you and it asks your exposure to nine adversities. Um, were you sexually abused? Were you physically abused? Were you emotionally abused? Um, did you grow up in a dysfunctional family system uh, where you saw a a uh, loved one being uh, traumatized in front of you, which is categorized as a secondhand trauma. Any substance use disorder, mental health disorder, divorce, um, uh, were you emotionally or physically neglected, and goodness with the, with with. Um, with the capitalism and the high demand on mom and dad, um, a lot of parents, kids are growing up um, deprived from you know the attachment and the attunement that they need from the caregiver, uh, which means they grow up with uh, with lack and they enter the workforce expecting the leader to serve as the parent figure that they've never had. Um, so why do I find so much value in this A study because it the the higher your score the more yeses to the questions that i just asked the more likely you are to end up with the with a disease of some sort Again, goes back to the point of how I find trauma to be the root cause of a lot of chronic diseases as well as mental health diseases that presents itself uh, later on in life. Um, so this is one of the mechanisms that you can go about identifying unhealthy situations as a pharmacist um, at the front line. I used it, and for example, if for example one of my patients said. Four yeses to the nine questions, I knew this individual was twelve times more likely to take down their life with suicide. They were four times more likely to show to end up with depression, three times more likely to end up with ischemia, the number one killer in the United States. So the data is out there, but and I thought about, well, gee, if we have the A study, we should all jump on this A A study and kind of include it in the vitals. But unfortunately, trauma. Todd does not make money. So trauma is not included in the DSM five. Now the symptoms. Our coping mechanism of trauma, such as depression, schizophrenia, ADHD, that is included in DSM-5 because there is a specific pharmacotherapy for it, but trauma is not included. There is PTSD, but again, PTSD is simply a response to trauma. Um, So that's something that I've used as a provider, and I also use metacognitive, which is mindfulness in regulating the body. Um, You might ask me, well, that is healthcare. What about team? There is. Um, there are other assessments that you could use to come up with some patterns that is very indicative of this individual, this staff member, or this colleague of yours that has been exposed to adversities early on in their life.
1: That's such um, amazing insight that it was it was extracted from your experiences. And I still think that you've made better sense of when what you went through as a child because you've now gone through this mm-hmm. research and that was that necessarily the the inception of it did you do that on purpose in order to make sense of what you went through or was it hey I'm leading as a healthcare provider and then it caught up to you later after you realized that implementing some of the strategies that you were doing for patients opened up this door of healing for yourself
0: so I, um, and again, this, this is research, right? Um, By the time we're 35, 95% of our mind is subconscious, right? Uh, Which means, what do I mean by subconscious? Is the old habits, the beliefs, the dogmas, the dysfunctionalities that was, that we were exposed to in our early childhood. And the body keeps the score. We don't have a recollection of it because um, the cognitive part of the brain does not develop until we're nine, but all this exposure as a child, it gets stored in the subconscious state of our mind. And this subconscious dictates our relationships, our career choices, whatever you do without you having any awareness of it. And the reason I say this, because subconsciously, um, after I graduated from pharmacy school, I decided to join Doctors Without Borders without realizing that I had something unfinished in me from my childhood that I thought I needed to go and finish it up um so that's the subconscious drive in me um so I went back and I started uh, treating little girls um, same age as I was when I left um, until the inner child in me started crying for help. Helen, what about me? And then I realized that the one that needed help was me. It wasn't um, those little girls. Yes, they needed help, but I was the one that has like left this, this child ignored over the years. And I was like, well, I'm a pharmacist. I am trained in America and I, I there is just no way I will be someone with PTSD. But sure enough, when I was back, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Now, the reason I say this, because imagine how dangerous the subconscious state is. Um, talking about explicit and implicit bias, um, explicit is when someone like makes discriminatory comments um, verbally to you. So you're aware this individual is having explicit discriminatory beliefs about you. But implicit is this individual is having the same exact discriminatory beliefs, but it's all Inside, you're not aware of it. So the subconscious is the same concept. You have all these drives that is pushing you, that's making you make all these decisions and you have no aware, awareness of it. So I would say definitely my, um, Exposure to trauma in my early childhood subconsciously drove me to um, to where I was. But I would say being the pharmacist kind of complemented, um, having the right training kind of complemented my passion of ha- providing trauma informed care. So it's a little bit of both.
1: It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how you've taken something that can trap a person. Mm-hmm. In their profession in their life in their marriage or being a parent you took something that could really become debilitating and you've turned around and you've learned how it impacted you and now you're using it to as a as a healthcare provider and as a as a leader even with the south carolina um, pharmacy association and, and just having that extra you know, force ability, uh, to, to, you know, Jedi powers to understand now there's another facet of medicine and healthcare that Mm -hmm. comes to play. And it, it's, it's relevant and more today than ever because of our hypersensitivity to, um, to feeling like you're being attacked and how to deal with that. And then how to turn around and become empowered, um, within yourself and, the le- younger we can teach this to our children, the better, because then they'll be able to overcome uh, the small um, you know, adversities and the small situations, but then also when the big ones come, they're going to be able to exercise that as well.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And well, that's this- partly why um, in my discussion with deans, uh, especially when I speak, uh, I-, I am hopeful that... Um, more and more schools are incorporating yoga studios and mindfulness studios, and, um, and that's all transformation, right? Self-transformation that I've, I was talking about earlier, that curriculum is not just about the hard skill, but it's also the human 101, because we're now developing an understanding that we don't have a, we're just not exposed to ideal growth. Um, and we need that extra help, that self-transformation to complement our training as pharmacists.
1: Well, we have to plug uh, more into some of your your um, your lessons, as well as lessons that you've learned yourself. But now they're turning into lessons for others. So this is very special, Helen, and I'm I'm not only proud of of what you've done, especially being a, a pharmacist. But um, I'm honored that you came on the show and were able to share this. And I think this is the beginning. We're gonna have. In the show notes, um, access to your uh, Twitter profile. We're going to have a link to the uh, book, Trading Grenades for Candy. And we're going to have a link to the South Carolina Pharmacy Association as well. Um, I want you, uh, as someone that is in pharmacy and pharmacy is very small, to uh, use the pharmacy podcast as you see fit to get information out to our pharmacist and, and how we can learn together Rx. That's my, uh, hashtag, uh, together. And then Rx at the end. And, um, and that's really what this is about. This is about coming together and empowering each other and leveraging pharmacists where they should be. And anytime there's a patient involved, a pharmacist should be there. Totally. So in wrapping up, is there anything that you'd like to leave our pharmacist listeners thinking about, um, before um, before you come back to the pharmacy podcast with a uh, with your next um, your next chapter,
0: I think that my only um, advice is that um, to develop an awareness. Um, and the reason I say this it might sound like a cliche, right? But I feel like eighty seven percent of Americans now are reporting work related panic attacks. Um, 95% of Americans are not happy with their jobs. And there is a reason behind all this. Um, you can just continue being in that autopilot and hop from one job to the next, or you can just take a moment and reflect and develop that awareness through metacognition of what is going on with, uh, with myself. Um, the one thing I want to make a make it clear through your platform Todd is that meditation is not about having that perfect body being on a cover of a magazine and fitness. Um, Metacognition is about science, it's about getting becoming better at living. Um, and I I, I say this because there is a lot of science involved with metacognition, is using that vagal tone of coming to consensus with our sensation, everything in the environment, any stimuli we're exposed to develops a sensation in our body. But because of that 95% subconscious state, we live in an autopilot, so we just go like you know, without developing an awareness. If something develops a sensation, meditation teaches you to stop and develop an awareness to it, instead of just go continuing with that autopilot that we've been so used to over the years. So I hope that your audience will have a better appreciation of metacognition through this platform because there's just so much value in it.
1: Thank you. That's an amazing ending, and I have to admit that I am—I have another word for it. I have—I call it sweeping it under the rug. And um, you're trying to just not deal with the stress or the issue because you're too busy to take time, and and what that ends up doing is creating a a whole big pile of mess under that <laughs> under that carpet. You're going to trip over it because there's a a big bump in the carpet from all the dirt and dust that you're not taking care of.
0: Right, totally, totally.
1: Well, this has been an honor, Dr. Helen Serrani. It's been um, an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, transforming a nation we are all transforming a nation together rx i thank you so much for uh participating today
0: thank you so much for having me